Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take just a moment to tell you about an upcoming professional development program from AIBS. It's a course that's being taught by yours truly, and it's called Writing for Impact and Influence. I'll provide a link to the course in the show notes so that you can pick up more information. But the basic motivation behind it is to help those in science careers improve their written science communication skills. And, you know, kind of my hope for the course is that by the end of it, everyone who's taken it should feel very comfortable raising a hand to help write press releases, do social media, draft memos, review books, prepare marketing materials, and all of those little writing tasks that are critically important to careers today, but are rarely taught in traditional university programs. I hope you'll have a look. And I also should note that this is a course that's conducted completely online and you know is very flexible in the timing. So if you can attend live when we do the courses, that's great. Uh, but if you need to come back and listen later and you know turn in your assignments at your convenience, that's fine too. So please have a look and I hope to hear from you soon. All right, now moving on to the business of today's episode, I was joined by two folks, uh, Dr. Phil Higuera and Dr. Alex Metcalf, who are both at the University of Montana. They joined me to talk about the concept of resilience and particularly the ways in which it's applied to fire management with a focus on the social dimensions, but I'll let them describe it. So let's go straight to the interview. So uh, Dr. Higuera, Dr. Metcalf, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, our pleasure. Okay, so to get started in the interview, I was hoping we could chat a little bit about the concept of resilience in sort of a general sense um, and the history of the term. And, you know, being a former English major myself, this is very appealing to me. So, you know, what does this word mean and what does it mean to different people? So that's a big question. And it's actually part of what, what the whole uh, workshop that's behind this paper started with. And part of the goal of the work that, that is in this paper is to grapple with that very question and specifically to help make it uh, tractable for managers or policymakers to be able to manage for resilience. Um, so one definition that we can throw out there to start with is this definition that comes from the science of ecology, which we call eco ecological resilience. And in in that context, resilience is the capacity of a system to absorb a disturbance or some sort of, yeah, a, a disturbance and then reorganize and basically get back to this a condition that is similar to the way it was before that disturbance. And that ecological definition then focuses on, you know, the system maintaining the same structure, function, and uh, feedbacks that was in the system before disturbance. Yeah, and then on the social side, um, obviously the the term kind of has a, a positive connotation that if you are resilient to um, you know life stressors or bad events that happen, then that is a good thing. Um, and so there's some there's some overlap there, um, but I think what this paper um, has allowed us to do is is think about how ecologists versus social scientists have used the, that word um, and try to put those two things together. 
Okay, and I wanted to touch on the ecological resilience point just a little bit more because you mentioned in the article that it is the sort of non-value-laden usage of the term. And I was wondering, you know, just for those of us who aren't quite as familiar with the way that that could be used, could you give us an example of, you know, a state of ecological resilience that might not be so desirable from the human standpoint? Yeah, I think so. One of the examples... One of the examples that we that we have in the paper um, is it's this is all in the context of fire. So one of the con one of the examples we have in the paper is a system, um, say in, <clears throat> in the Intermountain West or Great Basin, where um, cheatgrass has invaded. So in these systems with invasive grasses, uh, after that invasion happens, that system is very resilient to fire. Uh, so meaning Cheatgrass comes in, the system both becomes more flammable, uh, and then when it does burn, it bounces right back to cheatgrass. Um, so that is an example of a system that is highly resilient to, to fire in this case, um, but from the perspective of land managers or community members who do not value invasive species, that resilience is not desirable. Okay, so so this in a sense then comes down to, you know, we need a framework for looking at the concept of resilience and evaluating it in a, in systems that have, you know, are driven partly by human desires for certain, you know, for certain outcomes. Yeah, except I delete the word partly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, part, part of what this, part of what the framework that we present in this paper is, is trying to encourage slash force people to do is to recognize that this the desirability component is kind of it's always there um whether it's explicit or implicit you know even when you're managing wilderness areas for for quote quote naturalness you know that's still that's you know links back to uh, to an act that congress passed you know in 1964 that formalizes some values that we have as a society and then gets transformed, <clears throat> transferred down to land management. Right. So, yeah, so it's impossible to completely divorce ourselves from from those systems, you know, no matter how much we might like to do so. Yeah, and, you know, um, that seems, it's, I mean, it is a simple idea and it's fun. And in, in our project, we've bounced back and forth a lot by saying like, well, boy, this is really, what we're saying here is really quite simple. Um, but at the same time, what we found through this work is that you know not recognizing these the objective and the value um, we call it value free and um, value explicit components of these questions when when we don't recognize those things, we meaning scientists, managers, scientists speaking with managers. Um, we end up getting derailed pretty quickly because conversations, um, yeah, they go into the weeds. <laughs> and this really prevents, it prevents this concept from being useful for, for both science and, uh, and management. Okay, so how do we avoid that? What's, what's the approach that we should be taking you know, to uh, better understand these systems in a way that properly incorporates an understanding of resilience um, you know, that is uh, also appreciative of you know, the, our, our human um, values that we're placing on systems? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two pieces to it. Um, the first is to have an explicit conversation with you know, the relevant 
I'll call them stakeholders or people who care um, about a system or who are affected by it to not just adopt kind of implicit goals as self-evident, but to go through a process of actually articulating those and reaching some consensus or agreement um, that there's a particular suite of values that we want to protect. And that that very subjective process provides the starting point for whatever um, management decisions we're gonna make or whatever levers we're gonna try to pull in the system. But I think the other part is understanding that these ecological systems do not operate fully independent of social systems. And so we don't necessarily get into it in this paper, but we very much you know, respect the fact that resilience as a value-free concept um, involves the interaction uh, between ecological processes, social processes, and how, um, how you know the feedbacks between those two. Okay, so why don't we why don't we populate this story with some characters and let's let's talk about fire. Um, you know, if you're managing a, a particular you know wildfire regime or something like that, what, who you know who might have a stake in that? Who might those stakeholders be? And you know what values might they have? Um, and you know we can just take a small example or, or, or a broader one and work from there. Uh, but just to get an idea of kind of how this would play out, um, you know, in a really practical setting. Yeah, that's that's um, that is a great exercise. And that's the third third of our project. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's the, the third third of our project, and we, you know, we actually had a workshop last month where we kind of started to do just this. So, you know, we can, we can play this out in a, in a given landscape or region. So we could think about, um, well, we can think about where we are here in the Northern Rockies in Missoula. We can think about the Lolo National Forest. Um, and the stakeholders or people who are involved in that include, you know, both the land managers and the forest service, um, it includes the population, you know, that lives in the Bitterroot Valley, um, the population that lives in Missoula. Um, so these are, yeah, these are people who recreate on public lands. These are people who breathe the air and, you know, are therefore, therefore value clean air to breathe. Um, and on the flip side of that, get upset when the air is smoky from wildfire smoke um, or from prescribed fire smoke. Um, there's a tourism industry there. There's a forest products industry. These are all people or stakeholders who are interested in either explicitly or implicitly, implicitly in what happens to our landscapes um, when they burn, how often they burn, uh, and what happens to the landscape after they burn. And, and then you also have you have managers as well who are uh, uh, trying to attain. Um, you know, various goals in terms of the way that the landscape is, um, you know, supporting biodiversity, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, you have managers that are going, that are focused on a whole variety of goals. So you might have, you might have managers who are, um, who manage these wilderness areas. We're lucky to have two pretty large contiguous wilderness areas just around us here, the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness and, um, Bob Marshall Wilderness, these are two areas where land managers have been able to manage for natural processes. So there, they, um, they've had the, the freedom and the ability to, 
to allow fire to exist on a landscape, um, then, you know, in very close proximity, you have forest managers who are tasked with, uh, you know, making sure that public lands that are classified as suitable for timber um, remain classified as suitable for timber after wildfires burn. So that requires them to um, actively or passively make sure that trees come back on, on in burned areas. Yeah, let me. I'd like to add to that that um, that I think what you're kind of getting at is that we have land managers who are trying to manage for kind of ecological. I'm putting air quotes health, um, but that is not a self-evident goal. Right, that is a goal and a value that society has expressed and conveyed to those managers through our policy. Um, and so, the managers are there to implement the will of the people um, and do it in a way that is acceptable and doesn't compromise other values um, of the people who live uh, in and near the area. So this is, in a sense, your model is a very introspective one. You know, we're, we we need to actually look at the motivations behind the uh, various actions that we're taking and and interrogate them uh, in order to figure out if we're actually, you know, seeking the goals that we should be. Yeah, I think if you look at um, some policy guidance documents, um, it is there are blanket statements about managing for resilience and, and kind of adopting resilience is implicitly a good thing perspective. And so... Through, through our interactions on this project, it became pretty um, clear that resilience is a goal, is, a, is the appropriate goal some of the time. Um, and then if you're operating in other systems, that that is exactly what you don't want to be doing. Um, and so, you know, stepping people through this very deliberate process of reflecting on what it is that they care about, how that aligns or does not align with the reality of the system um, is a really important first step to deciding which path you're going to go down. And why don't we walk through that uh, walk through that process a little bit? You know, what might this look like if we were looking at? Let's go back to that um, the cheatgrass example for for instance, because that would be a situation in which resilience would not be uh, necessarily the desired trait. So, with the the cheatgrass example, um, the framework that we lay out suggests you know first kind of understanding the system. Um, big picture so that can be i mean ideally that's the coupled social ecological system you could tackle this with any one of those individually for this example for this for simplicity we'll just look at the ecological system although i don't know having said that i'm gonna i'm gonna back up <laughs> right because the reason the cheatgrass is there in the first place is that that in itself makes it a social ecological system right so cheatgrass is there in the first place because we humans decided to to do something to introduce a species. Um, but anyways, um, you can evaluate the system and evaluate the likelihood that that system is going to change after a disturbance in this case. And so we could say after wildfire. In the case of a, of a cheatgrass invaded system, you can say the likelihood of that system changing after a wildfire is pretty low. So, you know, we, we present this probability of state change below in a cheatgrass invaded system and in the language of resilience that would mean that that system is actually resilient to wildfire 
So that's like, that's the first assessment. That's just understanding the social ecological system. Then the second step in this framework then is to do some evaluation of how acceptable that outcome is. So if the system doesn't change, is that acceptable to humans or unacceptable to humans? And in our, in our simple scenario with cheatgrass, you know, we say, well, again, if you, if you don't value invasive species, there are a lot of cases where that resilience, cheatgrass coming in after a wildfire um, comes out to be unacceptable. They don't, we don't like that outcome. So in that case, resilience is not the thing you want to be managing for in that case. Yeah, and in, in other systems, the next step may be to accept the fact that the system is unlikely to change and that, you know, societal views of that system and the values that we ascribe to it might need to change. Um, and so you can either move kind of on the x-axis and move up and down on the resilience scale, or you can move on the societal value scale. And, you know, often that's very difficult to do, um, but there are examples of that happening. So then you've, you've, you've applied this model and you've kind of gotten a way of understanding, you know, kind of the, the aims and goals of your system. And then that can be applied in terms of either attempting to alter the system or attempting to alter the perceptions of the system uh, in either way. Yeah. Yep. And so... We have, humans have varying ability to alter either one of those dimensions. <laughs> so uh, the, other, the other example that, that I was going to describe, and I think another thing that motivated, you know, that got a lot, of the, a lot of the co-authors on this paper excited in a reason why we think this is important to explicitly consider it, is that as, as we look forward, you know, with climate change, and a whole host of other global changes, the goal or the inherent goal of managing for resilience uh, will also become increasingly difficult. You know, so even if we do like the system that we have now, you know, so we're not in the cheatgrass scenario, we have a system that we like, everything is great. As the background conditions driving that system, um, we can just think of climate change, and you know maybe um, maybe population density or social pressures on on the landscapes as those conditions conditions change it's going to become increasingly costly for us to manage for resilience uh, one of the, you know the the biggest a big picture example of this is when we think about you know recent wildfires in California where there are social ecological systems that are largely desirable the way they are. Um, but if large destructive wildfires are going to increasingly occur or occur at a higher frequency, you know, this is when right now communities like paradise and other communities in California are asking the question, should we rebuild? Um, if so, do we want to just rebuild like the way we were? Do we want to bounce back to what it was before this? Or do we want to consider some sort of transformation? So that's the other that's the other conversation that we hope this work will uh, kind of catalyze. 
So there could be a situation in which, you know, if you're if you're in California and you're having wildfires of increasing severity and frequency, it may not be feasible to, uh, you know, to rebuild homes in the same way, in, in the same sort of, you know, social and ecological system, uh, simply because you're not going to get the fire regime back the way it was, you know, in 1955. Yeah, or, you know, maybe it is feasible because we can just dump a ton of money into it and and rebuild right away you know, which would be on paper, that would be the community was resilient, right? So great. Um, but what we're suggesting is, you know, if this happens again in five years, right? And then again in five years, then at this point, this is the time to consider whether the investment of those resources is something we want to do or not. And I would imagine in a case like that, you know, uh abandoning resilience or moving away from resilience as your sole or primary goal, you know, wouldn't necessarily mean, you know, the, the wholesale destruction of an ecosystem. It could be a transition to a different sort. But if you were managing purely for resilience, uh, you would be expending enormous resources trying to attain a goal that was at the very least highly expensive. Yeah. And that, you know, and that might be what we choose to do. We, you know, there are lots of systems that are, um, fairly, you know, the resilience is fairly low, um, but that are highly desirable. Um, and especially as climate changes and land use changes, um, that's going to be more so, but we choose, um, to stay there. Uh, and we accept the high mitigation costs that that's going to require. Um, but that we, you know, I think what this framework would allow us to do is to do that deliberately and to know what we're getting ourselves into and be, you know, eyes wide open to the costs that are going to be coming down the road. Okay. I think that gives us a really good overview um, of, of the framework and the ways in which it could be used. Uh, if you'll indulge a little bit of curiosity on my part, I always wonder about how these ideas come about. Um, and this one was born of a workshop. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, sort of how you came around to these thoughts and these ideas and how the paper took shape? Yeah, I think I think that's actually a really uh, interesting part of this work, and in my experience, and I think in many of the co-authors' experience, this was this was uh, unique or rare in in the science that we do. So, um, the yeah, the way this paper came about to zoom way back to the funding, um, we proposed to the joint well the joint fire science program, which is. Uh, federal interagency program that's broadly tasked with, you know, funding science that helps fire management and fire managers. Um, they, they came out with a call that in a nutshell was asking for researchers to help them understand what it means to manage for social ecological resilience in fire prone landscapes. And this was in response to this resilience language making it into um, a guiding document, the cohesive strategy, which broadly focuses on fire managers and um, and NGOs around this a goal of creating fire resilient communities. We need fire resilient communities in the future because fire regimes are changing, et cetera, et cetera. So it. What we propose to do, so Alex is a social scientist, um, an ecologist. Um, we proposed to get together a large group of ecologists and social scientists to wrestle with this question. 
basically knowing that we couldn't answer it on our own. <laughs> right. So, we're, we're that smart enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, right off the bat, recognizing that, hey, this is a really tricky question. And this is a question that requires getting a lot of smart people in, in a room together and wrestling with it. So we developed this workshop that, you know, included uh, just about almost two dozen folks. And in inviting people to that workshop, we thought, you know, who would we want in the room to help us wrestle with this? And so the workshop participants included people with expertise in, in ecology, in fire ecology, a lot of people who had focused, where the focus of their research is understanding, you know, how climate drives fire activity and how ecosystems respond to wildfires. Um, you know, traditional ecological and fire ecology research. And then on the other side, yeah, I'll let Alex explain yeah, you know, this population that we yeah, to, to complement that, we, I'm looking at the picture here, we invited a whole host of different social scientists, um, folks who think about um, the psychology of kind of individual resilience up to kind of community, um, community level resilience, and then um, some sociologists who think about broader dynamics and processes on the social side, as well as um, a couple policy experts who understand how these things get get translated into policy documents. Um, and so we gathered for two days, um, two years ago. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had a plan going in for kind of leading people through um, a few steps. And I think on step two, we realized our plan was maybe broken. <laughs> and so we uh, quickly improvised on the spot and kind of, um, you know, followed followed the interesting threads that were emerging from the group. Um, and so this was one of them. Um, and so then we've been working over the last couple of years to take that, you know, very nascent idea that came out of the workshop and, and put some flesh on those, on those bones. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I think the, the collaborative nature here is, was really important. Um, we, we, social scientists um, and ecologists tend to sit in our own realms with, there's lots of people calling for interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work. Uh, but getting that done takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of um, care for kind of the interpersonal relationships that, you know, can't just force uh, anyone into a, a team. And so we've been working pretty hard over the past three years now to, to do this, those necessary steps to foster that collaboration. And, and that's incredibly challenging, too, because oftentimes you're, you don't even mean the same things necessarily when you say the same words. Um, resilience itself being a case in point. Yeah, exactly. And that that's kind of what, you know, Alex said that on, on step two of our plan, things, I, it kind of blew up. That might be too big of a word, but things things didn't go according to plan. And that was basically on the, okay, let's all agree on uh definitions of resilience and what we want to be resilient. And, you know, it was, it's pretty funny to look at it, to look at our plan. We were going to march through, you know, on the af afternoon of day one, we were just going to do this and then move on. But what we, you know, what we discovered is that there was this, 
I'm not necessarily disagreement, but lack of agreement on even what this what what this term mean meant and how you go about even thinking about what you want to be resilient to wildfire. Um, yeah, everyone, we wanted people to answer the question and their answer was, it depends. And that subjectivity um, that was causing their hesitation is what, you know, gave birth to this paper um, was to kind of not force ourselves past that, um, that roadblock, but to really understand what that challenge was and to articulate it for other people. And it sounds like you know you you unearth major issues when you when you start to delve into those um, you know incongruities between you know uh, even just terminology and things like that. Yeah, and those incongruities have strong you know they in a way they are a function of the discipline that one is trained in or has thought about, um, and so it was it was clear that the, the disciplinary backgrounds of different participants you know, made it such that when you said this term, it meant one thing. And, you know, what certain participants got hung up on was different than other participants. So ultimately, one of the goals of, of this paper for us is to help other groups uh, speed up that process and not have to go through the same process before you can have a conversation um, about what it means to to be resilient to wildfire or how we how we can manage for um, how we basically how we can learn to live with wildfire better. Right. And what's next for this work? You know, are there further workshops planned or is, is the, the object now to kind of, you know, spread the word about, uh, you know, this article and these concepts and make sure that they're available to others who might be in similar management scenarios? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think we just referenced the fact that we had a workshop um, a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I think you don't get too far into the resilience literature or even this paper without being confronted with the question, you know, resilience of what? Um, and the answer to that question is relatively, sub well, is subjective. Um, and so that workshop a couple of weeks ago was an effort to, to get some people together um, who work in similar places to to start to answer answer that question and articulate the the subjective values that they care about. Um, and that was really well received um, by folks. And so I think at least an, uh, one next step is to document that process so that, um, you know, so that other places and other communities can go through that same process with um, some instruction to help, um, help chart a path forward. All right. Well, that's fascinating work, and we'll look forward to hearing more. Thank you both very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. You're welcome. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.